0: Again, we're super glad that you're here. If you're making your way in this morning and you see little... Yep, there it is. There's Trevor. Trevor's going to help you with that. Thanks, Trev. <laughs> Um, Some things I want to tell you guys about, and for those of you that are watching at home as well, this is an invitation to you. This coming Saturday from 9 o'clock until 1 o'clock in the afternoon, um, Pastor Jason, my hubbers... <laughs> <laughs> sweetie, um, is going to be teaching our partnership class that we have here at Brookview. And what that is, is a look into our family and how we work here is an invitation for you to partner with us, to get involved, to have your questions answered. And so if you are new to Brookview or you're not, and you've never taken that class before, we would love to have you come. Um, The way that you would RSVP for that would be to fill out your online connect card, or you can text the word PARTNER to our Brookview number, which is 425-406-3660. And so we're just excited for those of you that can come. Um, Yesterday afternoon, noon-ish, we opened up registration for our Brookview soccer uh, club, summer soccer club, and yeah, let's go. Um, we have secured a field for August 8 through 12th at Mount Lake Terrace High School where we were last year. For those of you that have been there before, you've been a part of it before, you know the like manpower that it takes to pull this thing off. And so we are looking for um, for volunteers but first I want to tell you if you have friends that you want to invite to that, Send them to brookviewchurch.com forward slash soccer, and they'll be able to sign up. Um, We sent an email out yesterday announcing our registration was open to those that have attended club before, and as of this morning, we have 38 kids. (laughs) So... Uh, two of those are Brookview kiddos. So, what a cool thing we get to do together in our community um, to live love outside of this space. And it is one of the main ways that we invest in kids in our community. And we would love, love to have you be a part of that. Um, like I said, volunteers are needed. The way that you would sign up for that would be to go to that online connect card or you can text the word soccer. Um, and we need all all sorts of help, you guys. It can be coaching, it can be assistant coaching, check-in tables, we need help with a Brookview store that kids shop for prizes after they're awarded um, character points during the day as we're learning about grit and patience and resiliency and teamwork. Um, And it's just a really cool thing. And then we end the whole week as if soccer wasn't enough for us with a big barbecue here in the parking lot. Um, And so we need people to help flip burgers and um, set out tables while we're over at soccer club to welcome the the force that is coming uh, in that afternoon. So if you're available to help with that at all in any capacity, even just a couple of days, we would love to be able to put you to work. And the sooner that we know that you can help, the better I can plan. And I really, really like that. (laughs) um so okay i did mention that connect card and um you can respond to anything um throughout the morning by going to brookviewchurch.com forward slash contact and fill that out and we just love hearing from you throughout the week
1: good morning. How about the weather? Hey, two things. One, um, Jen said that coming to the partnership class is to learn about the family. And I want to clarify, that's the church family, not our family. Uh, Secondly, I also want to point out to those of you that are uh, kind of, that you're doing the live stream this morning, we're going to take communion. And so if you want to take communion with us and you want it to kind of be at the same time as us, if you want to secure some bread and some sort of uh, beverage, juice preferably, uh, but whatever you got to, t- to do communion from home. So this is awesome. We have not done communion the way that we did it pre-COVID until this morning. Uh, we've been taking communion, but we've done it with the, those cheap little self-contained things. And then you hear everybody with the packages and everything. Jesus doesn't even like that system, like guess. Okay, this is really, this is getting irreverent fast. So we, we started this series last week called Eating and Drinking, and I think you can tell a lot about a person by who their critics are and what those critics say about them. Jesus had many critics And one of the most common criticisms of Rabbi Jesus was who he let into his inner circle through table fellowship, who he ate and drank with. Here's an example. Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So in Jesus' world, There were all sorts of stratospheres of people, and you were expected to know your place and stay in it. There were educated and uneducated. There were wealthy. There were peasants. There were male and female. There were also all kinds of different defined camps. Everybody had a side. Have you ever ever experienced what it's like when everybody in a culture takes a side? They had liberal, they had conservative, they had pro-Rome, they had anti-Rome, they had Jews, Samaritan, Roman. First century Judaism itself was more defi- divided than Christianity is today. Like there were Pharisees and Sadducees and Zealots and Essenes and they didn't like each other and they didn't get along with each other and there were many more. But Jesus would shock people again and again by ignoring boundaries. Jesus made room at his table for people that no one expected. He ate with tax collectors, he ate with Pharisees, he ate with Sadducees, he ate with zealots, he ate with prostitutes, he ate with Samaritans, he ate with corrupt government officials. He seemed to believe that if surrendered to God and filled with the Spirit, anyone could be healed, made whole, and made beautiful. So he just kept making more room at his table. He ignored the boundary markers of his day to make room, and he gave a place and a voice to all kinds of people. Now today, I just want to give you kind of a, a deeper dive into one example of it. And it comes in two different scenes that many of you know pretty well uh, from the story of a particular person. They both, they both re, bo- these both revol- revolve around a woman named Mary and her sister Martha. And I'm going to read both of these scenes, and then we're going to walk through them. So here we go. Luke 10, starting with verse 38, says, As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. Now envision this because there's a lot of people with Jesus to open your home to. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. John chapter 12, starting with verse one. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Let's not skip over that. Whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus's honor. Martha served, his sister Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard An expensive perfume, she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. There are numerous boundary-breaking things going on in these two scenes. And this, this kind of thing opened eyes and it opened hearts, and it opened minds. The way Jesus did this kind of thing opened doors of possibility, and many of his followers walked through those doors, and they began to rethink everything that they thought they knew. They began to dream about new possibilities, and we are now living in a world deeply imprinted by the vision of Jesus of Nazareth. So let's dive deeper into this and try to sense some of what's going on. Here's here's a little of the backdrop of the world that Jesus stepped into. Here is the table that was set for Jesus when he came on the scene. Women had no voice. Women had no authority. Women had no status. Many had little to no reach or influence, and most had no resources of their own. Jesus came into our world, and he turned a whole bunch of things upside down and when it came to a woman's place he didn't use many words mostly actions that were noticed and lasting and by the time he was done something new had begun he had established something different when he was done when he ascended back to the father here's what was different in the kingdom women have status in the kingdom women are given a voice in the kingdom women have a seat at the table in the kingdom, women are given resources with which to advance the kingdom. And, and, and Jesus did this by daring to mess with the table that was set for him. Jesus rearranged the seats around the table until it reflected the kingdom that he taught about and came to usher into our world. Jesus prepared a table that included previously excluded people like women. The question is, like, how? How did Jesus open the table to women. How did women go from being a, from, go from excluded to like not only included, but like highly valued around the table? So what I wanna do is I wanna look at these two stories from, from this home in Bethany. Here they are. Jesus and the disciples are traveling. They come to the home of, of Martha, and her sister Mary is there. Martha is taking care of all the preparations. The disciples are sitting at Jesus' feet, learning. And in the middle of the disciples is Mary. Now, this was not like an informal social gathering where everybody's just chatting it up. The way it worked was a rabbi would have have people who followed. In other words, people who lived closely with him and were taught like 24-7 by him until they understood and could live out the rabbi's way. And those people would be men. And they were in training to become rabbis themselves. Women would not have been permitted to do that. If they were in the room at all, they would have been standing on the outer edges or in the corner somewhere. But here's Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, sitting at the feet of the rabbi with all the men. And here comes Martha. And by the way, I think Martha often gets a really bad rap. I mean, the, the church has been down on Martha for, for a while. Why? Well, because she's in the kitchen getting everything ready. Can I just say, Martha's not doing anything wrong here. Quite the opposite. She wants to make sure that Jesus and, and her other guests are cared for in a warm and welcoming and kind environment, right? And, and this is a big task because suddenly this huge group is in her home, and it's not like they texted ahead and said, hey, we're on our way. So, so Martha comes out of the kitchen, and she interrupts the moment, and she addresses Jesus. Maybe, maybe you can envision, like, just try to envision her tone. Maybe it was a tone like this. She's like, Master, um, I'm doing this by myself. And, you know, I hate to bother you and interrupt, but, but do you think you could ask my sister Mary to help me? I mean, jeepers that sure would be nice. Yeah, no, no, she did not say it like that. Have any of you ever had like a type A mama that tends to work her butt off? Have you ever seen that mama when she's feeling overwhelmed and unhelped around the house? So let, let's think again about how she said it. Okay, she walks up, she's like, master, or more, maybe it's more like son, Maybe you can hear your mom right now in in those words, or, or a type A woman that you know. Son, you know you brought a lot of people into my house. And you know it takes a lot to get this done. And I'm in that kitchen by myself, and you're letting this girl sit out here with you, and you know she should be in there, and I don't hear you asking her to get in there. What's the problem? You tell that girl to get in the kitchen, where she belongs feels a little more realistic but this really feels less about needing help in the kitchen i mean that's part of it but it feels more like like a subtle scolding of jesus like you're the rabbi you know she's not supposed to be out here whether she's in the kitchen or not, you know she's not supposed to be out here. Will you really bring shame on our family in this way? This makes no sense. What are you doing? And I love the way that Jesus responds to her. He's so, so tender. Martha, Martha. Says it twice for effect, and, and I think to be extra tender, it's like, Martha. Martha, I know you don't understand. I know you don't see what I'm doing. And I realize for you, this this is shameful. But what Mary's doing is beautiful and new. And I'm all about it. This is how things will look in my kingdom. And so she has chosen well. Now, we're not told how Martha reacted, right? That's kind of where it ends. And maybe she's listening to Jesus, and she's standing there like this, and finally he gets done, and she's like, pfft. Or maybe she realized that in this moment, she has stumbled onto something. She has stumbled onto something bigger, and maybe her posture changed from critiquing to observing. Maybe she realized, okay, this is, this is no oversight, and Jesus is the master, and I have him in my home for a reason. So from that moment on, she watched and she observed and she picked up on stuff he was teaching even without words. Let's jump into the second scene. Second scene in Martha's home in Bethany. Jesus uh, raises Mary and Martha's brother Lazarus from the dead. Okay, So Martha opens her home again, now this time to host a huge celebration and Jesus is there and Jesus is the guest of honor and Jesus and Lazarus and others are all reclining at the table and everything's going well until Mary again does the unimaginable she approaches Jesus with a 12 ounce container of expensive perfume and she empties it onto his feet lets her hair down a scandalous thing for a woman to do in that culture in mixed company and she wiped his feet with her hair. Notice who's not saying anything this time. I mean, Martha's there. We're told that she's serving once again. So, so she's in and out of the room. She sees what's going on. Or for, you know, for that matter, she smells what's going on. Can you imagine 12 ounces of perfume poured out? Can you imagine? I wear gas. Is that TMI? And and I've been told by the women in my life, one spray's enough, dude. (laughs) I mean, you know how pungent good perfume is, right? One spray will do the trick. 12 ounces, I mean, it would have just been this massive, this massive overwhelming scent in the room. And so, like, you think, well, why all of it? And Judas asks that very question. He's concerned about finances, though John tells us it's not with pure intentions. But something momentous is happening here. This is an extravagant expression of gratitude, but it's also a prophetic act. Jesus tells Judas that Mary is up to something beautiful, that Mary was preparing Jesus for burial. He would soon be crucified. He's been talking about it. He would soon be crucified, and there would not be time. For proper embalming, So this is an act of gratitude for the raising of her brother, for all that Jesus has meant to her personally, the untold ways that he has loved her and empowered her and come alongside of her. But this was also a prophetic act. Mary knew what everyone else seemed to miss. This, this woman got, got what none of the men seemed to get. Her, like her understanding was on another level. You guys, with, um, with Cam living in Haiti... And and Kate, moving home last week, (laughs) I'm now outnumbered three to one. Joey, you feel me. (laughs) And you know what I've noticed? Here's what I've noticed. As the patriarch of my home, I'm usually the last one to know what the heck is going on. The ladies have insight into stuff that just, it goes over my head. Either I, I tune stuff out, you know, they're like, we said that, I'm like, you did not. They're like, we did, and they're all looking at me. <laughs> so I just miss what's said, or, or like something nonverbal is going on, and they're all totally tuned into it, and I'm just completely unaware. Either way, they all seem to know stuff that I, I never know. Dave, are you feeling me too? Yes. So here, here's the situation. We're, we're not told exactly how much Mary knew, but she was preparing Jesus. In, in both scenes, it took courage and leadership for Mary to step out. And in both cases, Jesus made room for her to do it. He made sure that there was space at the table for her, not just to sit quietly, but to be a voice, to lead the way. And Jesus did this again and again and again with various classes and groups that no one expected. These scenes with Mary are a sample of countless examples from Jesus. Like he did it with with lepers, he did it with sinners, he did it with women, he did it with non-Jews. He came to offer all kinds of people a seat at the table. Jesus came to tear down walls, not to build more. And his followers, they took that vision and they lived it in ways that very quickly changed the world. Like in our culture, we we have a creed. And it is, you know, as Americans, this is like our most sacred creed. A creed that brave men, and I will also say brave women, have died to defend. And it goes like this. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. As a society, we don't believe this perfectly, of course, there's still racism and sexism and discrimination and other junk. We're still struggling as a society just to live up to our own creed. But this is a value that is now embedded, deeply embedded in our culture. We truly believe that everybody has worth. We truly believe that everybody matters. But when Jesus entered the world, you guys, people did not think this way. No society had equality in its creed. Aristotle once wrote this. He said, for that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary but expedient from the hour of their birth some are marked out for subjugation others for rule this was the conventional wisdom of the ancient world this was the only truth that was considered self-evident in in the greco-roman world there was actually a shortage of of women there were about 140 men to every 100 women so we go well what, what happened to all the women why the shortage Well, they were left to die when they got born the wrong sex. There was a common ancient practice for unwanted infants called exposure. And so abandoning a child in a dump or leaving the child to just die in the elements. Um, There's a tender ancient letter written from a husband to his pregnant wife. And it's really, in many cases, very sweet. But listen to his thoughts on the possibility of a baby daughter. He writes to her, And he says, I ask and beg of you to take good care of our baby son. If you are delivered of a child, like before I can come home from my journey, if it is a boy, keep it. If a girl, discard it. But then listen to the tenderness toward his wife. He says, you have sent me word, don't forget you. How could I ever forget you? Do not worry. So he writes to her to say, I miss you, babe. I'm thinking of you. And by the way, if the baby is a girl, discard it. So casual, right? So callous, so first century. But after the first century, the gender imbalance slowly began to change. Why? Could it possibly have had something to do with a rabbi from Nazareth? It's interesting because we don't usually associate in our world, in our culture right now, we do not associate Jesus with women's rights, do we? But when you look at his life within its historical context, the way Jesus valued women was beyond revolutionary. Did you know that the longest recorded conversation between Jesus and one single other person in scripture was a woman? John chapter four, Jesus had a conversation that stunned his disciples. As they were traveling through Samaria, and we talked all about that last week, an ethnic group hated by the Jews, Jesus sent his Jewish disciples into town for supplies. And when they got back, here was their reaction. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, okay, a Samaritan woman. But no one asked, what do you want or what, why, why are you talking with her? So here was their rabbi sitting with this Samaritan woman, talking to her about her life and her relationship with God. And he took seriously her mind and her opinions and her questions. This had probably never happened in her life. And it's no wonder she went back to town and couldn't stop talking about this guy. What he was doing was so subversive. It's hard to imagine for us, but women were literally viewed as property, like legally. So in our world, OK, if, if your car is damaged, everything works out, you get compensated, right? Right? OK, you get compensated because you're the owner of the car. In the ancient world, if a woman was violated, the compensation went to her husband or her father, not her, on the same principle. It was the owner that got compensated. In Rome, every household had what was called a paterfamilias. It's where we get the words paternal or paternity. And the paterfamilias was the head of the family, and it could never be a woman. Many of you know that if a, a father died with a daughter but no son, his estate would pass to the nearest male relative. The paterfamilias was also like the the chief priest of of the family. The family worshiped whatever gods he decided. We we actually still have a trace of Roman custom in our wedding language. Sometimes you hear the phrase, to give her hand in marriage. Right, we hear that? Uh, And in Rome, a woman could be given in marriage in one of two ways. First, she could be given into the hand of her husband, meaning that her husband took control of her. Or the wife could be given without hand, meaning the father retained control of her. Now, if she was given into, the, into her husband's hand, then she was expected to renounce her father's religion and, and, and worship whatever God her husband worshipped. But as, as the movement of Jesus t- took shape and as his little community began to form, women were finding a different place than they had ever known before. Listen to Luke's description of this odd little community. Shortly after Jesus has been raised and he's ascended to the Father. This is chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. This is not after Jesus was raised. My bad. Uh, Luke chapter 8. After this, Jesus traveled from one town to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chuza, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. So here's Jesus doing his, his ministry. And we can overlook how shocking this arrangement would have been. But women did not travel with men on business. Women stayed home. Women didn't study the scriptures and learn along with men. But in this odd little community, Jesus had men and women travel and study and do ministry together. We're told that one of the women was Joanna, the wife of a guy named Chuza. Chuza was the manager of King Herod's household. And if you remember, if you remember in this season, King Herod was trying to kill Jesus. He saw Jesus as a massive threat. And the wife of his right-hand man is traveling with Jesus. She's learning and serving with Jesus without her husband. And you see what's beginning to happen in this new community. In Jesus' movement, women found a God who suddenly was higher than the state, a God who was higher than their husbands. They defied customs and risked their lives in following Jesus. In time, the kingdom of Jesus became a serious threat to the kingdom of Rome after, after 100, 200, 300 years. This, this faith was, was not simply a new religion, one of many in the Roman Empire. It threatened deeply held social structures, like the place of women among many. Jesus was planting seeds of sabotage in a male-dominated world. One day, Jesus was teaching, and we're told this. Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd yelled out, Blessed is the mother who gave birth and nursed you. None of you've ever said that to me, but if you I mean if you're like, I'm tired of saying amen or whatever. Blessed is the mother who gave, gave you birth and nursed you. So this lady's stepping out and, and she's complimenting Jesus' mom. That's nice, right? you'd expect a really polite response from Jesus, right? Like, hey, thanks. My mom's the best. Did you know she was a virgin? (laughs) Instead, Jesus attacks the paradigm of childbearing as a woman's highest calling. He replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Listen, a woman's highest calling is beyond childbearing. A woman's highest calling is the same as a man's, the glorious adventure of coming to know and do the will of God. In the, in the community that followed Jesus, women are given a different place. Like Paul, later on, he expresses how inclusive this really was when he talks about who can be adopted into the family of Jesus. In the ancient world, adoption was very, very different than it is today. In the ancient world, families would take in children sometimes, but mostly they were taken in as slaves to serve the family. Sometimes they were given like family-type status, but they were very rarely legally adopted. Why? Well, because adoption existed to create an heir for a family, to establish a paterfamilias. If a family lacked a male candidate, To become the head of the family, it might go out and find an exceptional young man to become the heir, a young man qualified to become the paterfamilias, and this was the only reason to go through the extensive legal process. Meaning, okay, meaning nobody adopted girls. Paul uses the metaphor of adoption to explain the incredible grace of Christ. But notice his emphasis in this passage we're gonna look at right here is is on sonship. It's on becoming a son of God. Notice how masculine it all is. This is Galatians 4, four to six. Paul writes, "But but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that what we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Now, why does Paul only talk about sonship, about becoming sons of God? Well, when you think about it, in Paul's world, only boys could be the paterfamilias. Only boys could become the family heir. Only boys could receive an inheritance. And so in his world, only boys got adopted. Paul is using a metaphor that applied only to males in his world, but here's the beautiful thing. Paul says that what earthly fathers only give to sons, God, through Jesus, is now giving to women as well. Paul says, get this, that God is now adopting women. God is making women heirs. God is giving them an inheritance. He's calling them his children. Listen to what Paul writes. This is Galatians 3, same letter. Uh, Galatians three twenty six to twenty eight. He writes, "So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ. For all all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus." Historian Thomas Cahill says that this was the first statement of egalitarianism in human literature. Guys, in this day and age, I find it so ironic that the church is often considered the enemy of women's rights. Because our king came into a male-dominated world and treated women with a dignity and respect that they had never known. He planted seeds of subversion that outgrew and outlasted the entire Greco-Roman civilization. Seeds that blossom into the beautiful ideals of brand new societies. Seeds that have led to thoughts like this, that all people are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. We, we live in a society that's that's far from perfect when when it comes to valuing women or valuing anybody, uh, uh, for that matter. Um, Our our culture is far from perfect, right? There's an old story where a, a CEO of a large company and his wife are traveling, and they stop for gas. And so the CEO goes inside to pay, and when he comes out, he notices his wife is talking to the service station attendant. So he asks her about it, and she says that she used to know the service station attendant in fact in her younger years she used to date him so the ceo kind of puffs up and he says i bet you're thinking you're glad you married me a ceo and not a service station attendant and she says actually no i was thinking that if i'd married him he'd be a ceo and you'd be a service station attendant (laughs) But honestly, isn't the bigger question, why can't she be the CEO? And in our culture, you guys, that kind of thing is happening more and more and more. When our daughter Brooklyn was about six, for about a year, it was epic, for about a year, when, whenever she'd get asked, and this is the question that little kids get asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? Right? She would say the same thing. Every time for a whole year. She'd say, when I grow up, I'm going to be the first female president. (laughs) You know, I I have no idea where she got that. Uh, She did not get that from me. uh, But here's the thing. I liked it. I like the moxie, I like the confidence. I, I like the concrete conviction that she can do anything. I, I like living in a society where doors are opening for women. I like that my girls can be CEOs or doctors or musicians or athletes. If they choose, they can, they can invest in being full-time moms or they can go into politics or they can be missionaries or they can practice law or maybe one day they can teach high school math if they want to. Guys, this has not always been the case. And even today, it's not the case for many, many women around the world. Even today, women are routinely devalued and dishonored. I mean, I think about the practice of of feet binding in China or the practice of genital mutilation in Africa. I think about the ongoing lack of education, lack of opportunity that's rampant in our world for so many women. But at the same time, much has changed in our world since Jesus walked the earth. I mean, have you ever stopped to think, who were the earliest advocates for the dignity of women? How did we go from women being property to women owning property? How did we go from from all boys being educated to all children being educated? Could it have had something to do with a rabbi from Nazareth? Is it possible that he planted seeds that are still growing? And historically speaking, I think it's undeniable. And to be honest, when it comes to women, I think our world has yet to catch up to Jesus. Dorothy Sayers was the first uh, woman to receive a degree from Oxford. And she became a devoted follower of Jesus. And she writes about why. Says, perhaps it is no wonder that women were the first at the cradle and the last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. There has never been another, a prophet and teacher who never nagged them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made jokes about them, who never treated them either as the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them who rebuked without demeaning and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend. You guys, Jesus came quite literally to reset the table. He came to bring people to the table who had never been invited before. He made space where space had never been made before. Jesus made room for people that, that never thought that they could be invited. People with the wrong political views. People with the wrong past. People with the wrong gender. People with the wrong ethnicity. People with the wrong religious backgrounds. Jesus brought reconciliation and dignity often without saying a word. Now, he said many words, but what, what drove his words home what really impacted those who who watched him was his actions. And nothing illustrated his words like who he ate and drank with. I mean, if we're not only invited to be, as we've been talking about for months, to be immersed in the healing river of Jesus, if we're not only invited to be immersed in the river of Jesus ourselves, but to then become a part of that river to our generation, then we better give serious thought to who it is that's invited to sit around our tables. If we're truly trying to impact our generation, you guys, we will never, ever do it as a holy huddle. We we are going to have to open up our tables to people who are not like us, people of different income levels, different ethnicities, different values, different religious backgrounds, different political views. So I just want to ask you, who in your life fits into a category like that? Do you have a sibling? Do you have a coworker? Maybe parents of one of your kids' friends, somebody on your softball team or your soccer team, or a neighbor that you talk with occasionally. Jen and I have tried to do something kind of different over these last few summers, very intentional. What we've tried to do is replace some of our structured ministry time with more organic stuff. So, like, from September to June, you guys, our evenings are just, like, they are booked up. Uh, I lead a men's group on Tuesday nights. Jen leads a a women's group on Wednesday nights. Then I lead two online groups on Thursday nights, my friends. (laughs) But from June to August, right, our groups take a break. They take a summer Sabbath, and that means that a huge amount of structured stuff is, is on pause for us. So, we try to find some organic ministry to, to weave in there instead. That could be barbecues, it could be s'mores around a fire, it could be Mariners games, anything to hang out. And we, we've tried over the last several summers to include people of all kinds. And that means there's lots of Brookview people people who know Jesus, people who are our family, people who are our friends. And we, we love that, right? And we need that. But also, We try to include people who are not actively walking with Jesus. For example, uh, Brooklyn has a friend in school who has two moms. And and I've talked about them before because we've come to be really good friends with them. We adore them. They are kind, sweet, thoughtful, smart, creative women. They're married and raising a beautiful girl. And initially, we kind of got to know them in like group settings because lots of kids from Brooklyn's friend group would get together and they would get together at some event and, and so the parents would come sometimes and sometimes there were dinners or barbecues with a, like a bigger group. And these two ladies were often just very friendly to us. And so we, we sensed an open door and we decided we're gonna walk through that. So for the last several years, we've hung out with them quite a bit. Brooklyn has spent the night at their house with her friend and we have their family over for dinners, or s'mores, or whatever, and we feel very strongly that God has brought them into our lives, and we've, we have had amazing conversation after amazing conversation with them. Like, they're curious about our church, and they're curious about how I came to be a pastor, and, and what this whole thing looks like for me, and, and for Jen, and, and they don't, they're not asking these questions to be critical, or defensive, or anything else, they're just curious, because they, they, they love us and they want to be a part of our lives. And so I am, I am proud to call them friends and I have a lot of respect for them. But I will say this, it's not, we didn't go into this looking, you know, looking for this relationship. like we, we didn't just wake up one day and say, you know what, babe, we don't have any lesbian friends. <laughs> we should go out and find some. What happened is our paths just kind of naturally crossed and this door opened and we walked through it. And so my question for you is, who is already in your life that's different from you? Is there a way for you to cultivate that relationship just a little more, a way for you to to carve out a little bit of space at your table for them in some way? And by the way, you, you aren't getting to know this person or this group of people or this couple or whatever it is. You're not getting to know them because they're a project for you. You're just getting to, you aren't just going into it so that you can teach them all the right things about life, all your correct beliefs. Now, I mean, like, do you want them to know Jesus if they don't? Well, of course you do. But recognize, please recognize, you have a lot to learn from them too. We can learn a lot from people that are different from us. In fact, if we only ever hang out with people that are pretty much just like us, how in the world are we supposed to grow and learn? So on Thursday night, my online group was studying the story of the Good Samaritan from, you know, last week. And so we, we did several readings on it and um, we did several reflections on it. And then at the end, we all wrote out an invitation from God for what we sense God is is saying to us. So here's what came to me. This is what I sense God saying to me and inviting me into in response to the story of the Good Samaritan. God was saying to me, Jason, you are about to have more flexibility with your schedule to hang out with people of all kinds. I want you to invite me into those places to help you see how to love well and serve well and draw people toward me. If you use those opportunities as ministry, not a break from ministry, and if you look to me in them, I will, I will use you to produce good fruit. And this, you guys, here's the thing. So I'm like, oh, shoot, God, that's hard. It's actually super exciting to me. It's actually really cool. Now, God guiding me to certain settings because I'm listening and I'm aware and I'm asking him to. God guiding me to certain settings and then, and then God guiding me in those settings. And, and those settings, by the way, they still include food and drinks. I like food and drinks. And they still include like burgers or steaks or charcuterie or you know, a search for the world's greatest hummus or, or whatever or beer or wine or seltzers. Or, but most important of all, it, it includes people to love and it includes dependence upon the Holy Spirit. This is what makes it an adventure with God. It will include lots of people who know Jesus and several people who don't. And, and that just leads me to one kind of one final thing. Several years ago, Jen and I were, we were with a group of Christians that we love and, and respect. And um, we, were, we were just sharing with them about our, our daughter's moms, the friends, and the way that God is working in that relationship. And we just felt so blessed to have this open door and to be able to walk through it and, and, and all that was happening. And a, a person who, from that group who had never met them that day said, hey, I don't think you should hang out with those ladies or let Brooklyn spend time or certainly not spend the night at their house. And the group kind of sat back. It's like the music stopped. And the group kind of sat back in shock. And then the group politely disagreed. I love that when people say things that I disagree with. I I say, huh, what do you guys think about that? Let the group speak. Here's what I will tell you. I am going to walk with those that love Jesus. And I'm going to walk closely with all kinds of people that don't. I am. And, and you guys, if at the end of my life, the great criticism of me is this man welcomes sinners and eats with them, that that means that I will have done something terribly right. This morning, we, we are all invited to the table of Jesus. We're going to do communion, as I said earlier, in a way that we haven't for a long time. But as we do, let's remember, can we just please remember, none of us have earned a seat at the table. Right? Like, none of us have earned a seat at the table. We're, we're all welcome because of the just amazing grace and love and relentlessness of our Heavenly Father and the way that He has loved us in Jesus. Truth is, I fall short in millions of ways every day, and so do you. And hopefully, we're all growing. Hopefully, we're all maturing. But none of us have arrived. And, and this is why our seat at the table is such a gift from God. I mean, in the first century, almost, when you think about it, almost all of us would have been excluded from the table. I mean, for heaven's sakes, most of us are not Jewish, (laughs) among other things. Many other reasons that we would have been excluded. But Jesus gave his life to make a place for us. And he said, take, eat. This bread represents my body broken for you. Take this cup and drink. This represents my blood shed for you. Jesus made room at the table for you and he made room at the table for me. And so may we then live in a way that extends his heart to our world. And here's, here's how we're going to do this this morning. Here's just sort of the logistics. I want to invite the worship team to come up. And here's how we're going to do this. We have, we have communion, we have bread and, and juice, uh, both spots up front here, as well as in the back. In the back, this is awesome, Yelena, um, she also makes a gluten-free version. And if you go to the back, it's in there. There's a plate. It's the one that's behind the sign that says gluten-free, and it's the darker colored one, if that's you. Um, but you can take, the, you can take the, the juice and the bread, and you can, you can uh, take it standing. You can take it back to your seat. Or you can come up to the front and spend some time kneeling in prayer and just worshiping and remembering who Jesus is and what he's done. Um, we're going to spend a kind of an extended time of worship this morning. I think we've got four songs worth, maybe 20-ish minutes. So you can come up, you can worship, and just come up when when it makes sense for you. Spend some time reflecting, and then let's, let's do communion together. Amen. Amen. Amen.